Join us for our first virtual event of 2021, After Dark Open Finance Fact or Fantasy. Open finance is still a pretty new concept, but what opportunities and risks does it present? Find out how your business can leverage open finance as we bust some of the biggest myths about this trend at our After Dark event on the 17th of March. Stay tuned for some of the guests who'll be joining us and register now to save your spot for free at bit.ly forward slash After Dark Open Finance. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer, and in today's episode, we're going to be talking about all things culture and transformation. With shopfronts closing and the majority of us bound to our houses still, this past year of the pandemic has brought digital really to the forefront. In this industry and at a time where everybody really needs it, having a truly digital financial services company is no longer a nice to have. It is absolutely necessary. When talking about digital transformation, though, a term that often really enters into that conversation is culture. And I'm saying that with as much inverted commas around it as I can do, because culture means so many different things to so many different people. But what does it really mean? And where does it come from? And really, why does it even matter? In today's show, what we're going to be doing is going to try and answer some of that question. And we're going to deep dive into this topic. And as always, I'm joined by some pretty damn awesome guests. So making her FinTech Insider debut, we have Dr. Julia Frudi. I hope I've got that right for you, Dr. Julia there, uh, who is a organizational psychologist and founder of Spark. Thank you very much for joining us, Julia. Can you tell us a little bit more about Spark and your experience as a organizational psychologist? Because that's a pretty interesting role. Thank you, David, for having me. It is true, this is my first time on your show, but I've been around in the financial industry for more than 20 years now, working for multinational insurance companies and banks. As a matter of fact, for the past 10 years, I was the SVP responsible for HR at major European banks. Then three years ago, I decided to put all my scientific background and decades of practical experience to better use by building something innovative. And this is how SparkQ, actually, the software was born, which is a mobile application that measures the transformational capability of organizational cultures. And at this point, we have, as you would say, the lovable product, (laughs) and we are excited to be in the startup space, creating the tribe of true believers. So yes, I'm definitely a culture enthusiast. Very good. Looking forward to hearing a lot more. Also joining for the first time, we have Nigel Walder, who is the Chief Operating Officer at ClearBank. Thanks very much for joining us, Nigel. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you, David. For anybody who doesn't know ClearBank, do you want to give us a bit of background on ClearBank, what you guys do, and a bit about your role? Yeah, sure. So I'm much older than Dr. Julia. So I've been in financial services for about 35 years now, 33 of which largely spent servicing or being inside of large corporations. I did 10 years setting up my own business, but it still serviced those large corporations. And the last two years at ClearBank. So hopefully if we get into some cultural differences between some of the fintechs and some of the larger organizations. Hopefully, I've got some uh, context from both sides. So ClearBank, fundamentally, I see us as a platform play, and we're a combination of a super real-time technology platform combined with a banking license. And what that allows us to do is provide effectively payment services for other financial institutions. So we've got about 120 financial institutions now on our platform that are using us for payment services 
but also some banking as a service services such as current accounts and FSCS protected deposit accounts. So that's a clear bank. Very good. And returning to the show, we also have Mr. Chris Skinner, non-executive director at 11FS, among I think about a thousand other things that you do in the day-to-day. Chris, how's it going, my friend? Yeah, yeah, going well. Obviously, tedium with the Groundhog Day number 375. But apart from that, you know, everything is good. And I guess for the theme of the show, it's very difficult to have a cultural, I guess, glue when everybody's been unglued. But maybe digital changes the game. So we'll talk about that. I'm sure we'll get into that as we go. Okay, so maybe sort of get us going on this one. I mean, many conversations are happening around digital transformation. But we always, and I find in any conversation I have about digital or technology or, you know, banks building technology or banks really understanding what change needs to happen, it always ends up in a debate around culture. You know, it always comes back to that. So, you know, why is culture really at the center of digital transformation? I mean, do you guys think it is a inextricably linked thing in terms of to transform something, you have to transform the way in which an organization works? I mean, Julia, maybe starting with you, you've worked in a big bank and now you're helping organizations try to understand this type of change. But I mean, what do we really mean maybe when we talk about culture? Well, let's start with a bit of digital transformation, because I do believe that executives and not only in the financial industry relate to digital transformation as, let's say, teenagers relate to sex. They are all excited about the topic, want to know more, discuss it for hours on end, throwing buzzwords around. But when it comes to action, there is still confusion, some enthusiastic fuffing about, a bit of disappointment, and then a lot of bragging. That does ring true, right? (laughs) So jokes aside, more than two-thirds of currently active CEOs have the mandate to see through some form of strategic transformation. And research tells us that 93% of digital transformation efforts fail. And they fail because of organizational culture. And so its gravity is undisputable. But the reason they are still skittish to touch the subject is down to basically two things. One, it is very difficult to define. If we go by the book, culture is the summary of thoughts on failure, competition, what is our cutting edge, you know, what we can and what we cannot do. Also experiences, expectations, behaviors, beliefs, and values. And I can see our listeners already cringe, you know, looking at their mugs and stickers on their desk stating four, five, six company values. And I'm sure one of those is customer first or customer risking or client rules or something along that line. However, organizational culture is not what we print or say we stand for. It is actually what and how it surfaces in the everyday life of a company. For example, if we stick with customer first, are we just saying that or are we actually living it when in the name of digital transformation, we go full agile in headquarters, but leave the sales force intact? After all, someone you know still needs to focus on the P&L and bring in the cash, while the other half of the company is playing innovation. And as we're doing this, we cut off sales that is in direct contact with the customer who is, as Sticker says, first. And also, we are inadvertently driving a deeper wedge between structures of the organization. So culture is that underlying texture of knowledge of what is really going on at a company. And the second reason is that it is difficult to measure culture. What we usually measure are engagement, satisfaction, 
and net promoter score. And this will not give you any indication as to whether your culture will hinder change or withstand the turbulences or actually facilitates or embraces digital or any kind of transformation. So to sum up, culture is the way we think about stuff around here, meaning the company, and the way we do things around here. And this is why decision makers consider culture a nuisance. It is hard to put your finger on it, but it will still sink your ship. Mm. I mean, that's that's fascinating, Julia, because uh, as you sort of say, I mean, when people talk about digital transformation in banks, I mean, Chris, you talk to a lot of banks around the globe. Actually, when people talk about digital transformation, very rarely are they talking about culture because it's this ethereal sort of thing that they can't put a an ROI on. So they have a tendency to gravitate towards tech or features that are manifested to customers. So, I mean, for you, where does culture sit into digital transformation? And is it is it sort of the underloved child of, uh, of really making digital transformation work as Julia describes? Absolutely. In that having been in the industry for quite some time, like Nigel, I've always dealt with banks that are very much command control structures, very hierarchical and very much based around the minions, just tick boxes and push buttons and the management control how they behave with scripts. And that worked well in an old physical distribution structure, but it works really badly in a digital structure. Now, what's been happening with most banks is they've been adding digital on top of that structure, and they haven't dealt with the elements of humanity and people change. They've been dealing with projects to add tech, add mobile, add internet, now add digital. And what's interesting is uh, I got a figure from IDC, which uh, made me laugh, that estimated in 2018, banks spent... $1.3 trillion on digital transformation and $900 billion of that spend, 70%, was completely wasted because they were just adding digital on top and not actually being digital. And a lot of that's down to the management team itself being bankers, not technologists, which I make a point of regularly. The banks I chose for the book Doing Digital that talks a lot about cultural transformation is because the banks changed the leadership teams to be balanced between finance and technology. But also, a lot of it's to do with, if you want to make a bank behave as though it was born on the internet, that is cloud-native, not just cloud-based, that is being digital, not doing digital, then most of that is actually all about cultural change and changing people. And very little of it is to do with technology itself. The cultural change is because most of the middle management are going to absolutely fear what the banks and leadership team are talking about if they are seriously talking about digital transformation because they think they'll lose their jobs, they'll lose their power base, they'll lose the 5, 10, 15, 20 years they've been working in the bank to get to where they got to. And those fears and those fundamentals must be addressed head on up front at the start. If they're not, you just end up with what I call a frozen project. It starts with all the heat and impetus from the executive leadership team and the CEO. And by the time it filters through to the people who actually have to do the jobs, the middle management's completely frozen it and they stopped it. It's about cultural change and it's about human change. It's not about technology. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that point and, you know, actually coming to you on this, Nigel, the impact that good technology has from a cultural shift perspective. You know, every bank on the planet has been blending agile books and feeding it to their employees. 
But actually, the manifestation of Agile is born off good technology. But you can't have great technology and a waterfall working method in terms of doing these things. So a good example of this is something like microservices or even cloud. You know, cloud as an operating model says more about your operating rhythm of your business than it does where your data centers are, perversely. The rhythm of distributed workforce, decision-making to the edges, small teams who are empowered, that is a fundamental trait of a digital business, but is very different to a command and control you know, large scale, I've got so many people in my empire type business. So, I I mean, do you agree with that? You know, technology is a trait of a digital business, but it's not the core of it. Yeah. There's another saying that's like that, right, which is users get the technology they deserve. I think that there's a couple of thoughts on it. I think, you know, put rather crudely, I think a lot of the digitization programs and projects in large corporations, not just financial services, They're basically lipstick on a pig. And I think that when I've thought about this, it's really interesting because if you're a 200-year-old institution, you've got massive history, massive client base, and you've got a lot to lose, okay? And I, I think that when people have got all that history behind, and let's say you've got the CEO that spent the last 35 years trying to get up to the top position, et cetera, et cetera, The behavioral aspects of an organization like that are pretty defensive. They're pretty risk averse. They don't lend themselves just naturally to the DNA of something that needs to get transformed because you're always worried about what you're going to lose, probably as much, if not more, than what you might gain. And I think that when you come to, you know, what are the positive characteristics around culture on successful digitization programs? It's probably two things for me. It's courage and it's trust. And if you think, going back to Chris's point about command and control of large organizations, you know, if you truly want an agile environment, you can't go through and suddenly start where we've all been, which is, okay, well, tell me how much is it going to cost and exactly when is it going to get delivered and how many phases and what's the output? And the answer is, well, in a digitization program, I don't know, because I don't know how the customers are going to behave. I don't know what the responses are going to be. So I can't do it like that way. What you've got to do is you've just got to invest and you've got to trust me and we'll work closely with the customers and we'll iterate and off we go. That is so diametrically opposite to the way that large organizations are run, which is, you know, a lack of courage because of fear of what they might lose, command and control. And I think they're just fundamentally fearful. And I think that just gets embedded right in the fabric of the DNA of an organization. And consequently, when it comes to the digitization, I think they could have the best technology in the world. They could probably have better engineers and and better technology than the fintechs, but they're just just not going to succeed because of that that hindrance. Mm. I mean, getting the greatest talent and retaining the greatest talent in that culture is, is a challenge, isn't it? Chris, what do you think? I just wanted to make a quick point, building on what Nigel said, in that you know, I've tried to get organizations to move from command control to coach counsel, to flatten the organization and become far more agile in most of my working career in transformation. And what you see, and I think it illustrates it really well, and you all know this, David, in fact, all of you will, is what most traditional firms do, not just banks, but any company, is see digital and new competition and challenges and go, well, we have to compete with them, but it's so difficult to change our company. We'll launch a separate company. We'll launch a new bank. And then what happens, and this really illustrates the cultural clash really well, 
is the old people in the old bank kill the new people in the new bank because it starts to threaten their livelihoods and their positions. And to me, that is the fundamentals of digital transformation, which is don't launch a new bank, don't launch a new company, change the old company, change the old company's people. It's funny, isn't it? We'd like to change and be better, but can we do it by not changing anything? It's always a uh, an interesting sort of balancing act. Julia, what do you think? Exactly my words and my sentiments, you know, that one of the problems is that we see with incumbent banks that innovation or digital efforts are confined to a small organizational unit, a lab, a hub, or that is, first of all, sometimes physically away from the rest of the bank, let alone its decor, the working hours, the way they dress and everything. They get extra budget that some other parts of the bank had been fighting for for ages and bam, they get it. They have privileges and shortcuts to management. And on top of that, they can make mistakes. They can fail. And they do fail and they celebrate and move on and they don't get fired. How different can your culture be? That upsets the whole system because this is not the mainstream legacy culture. So in the end, the legacy part of the bank sometimes, you know, willingly slow down or tank the digital efforts because this is not how we are used to doing things around here. So, yeah, absolutely. I I fully agree. Mm, I mean, there have been pretty mainstream examples of that as well, right? Recently, there's, I mean, Bo with RBS is a good example of a bank building a new bank like an old bank. And, you know, that doesn't result in the process that you need. Similarly, over in the US with JP Morgan Chase, there was Finn. The reports are that failed because it was too close to the big bank's culture. So, I mean, why do people take that approach, do you think, Julia? Given the ethereal nature of culture and given, you know, the points that we're making, very, very logical, you know, the four of us can have a good conversation and it makes total sense. But is there something in the practicalities of applying this to, you know, a 200,000-person organization that makes it Uh, I mean, this is hard, right? Yeah, this is hard. But I also think there are techniques, there are methodologies that makes the invisible culture visible. And one of the things is measuring stuff and exploring your culture. And uh, for example, what I'm really enthusiastic about and I'm fascinated by is network analysis being done to deep dive into the cultural fabric of an organization. It can tell you exactly who are those people who have the biggest influence on culture. And if you have this information, you're able to shift the mindset, change things quicker and have a more lasting effect and also know ahead you know, when trouble's brewing. So I do believe that you need to deep dive. You cannot just tolerate culture and think, okay, well, this is some rosy, fluffy thing that we can't put our fingers on, but but actually go and use the available methods to do the deep dive. Mm. I mean, the hardest part on any understanding and making change is first admitting that there is some sort of problem. Again, because of this sort of you know, ethereal nature of culture. I take your points, Julia, on benchmarks or networks or or defining those things. Do you think people sometimes get confused with what culture and happiness? Because I think there's a there's a predisposition that the right culture means everybody is happy within an organization. And I think sometimes almost the prefix of for what, you know, what type of culture you want in your organization is based on what type of thing you want to be trying to achieve, really. And actually, I mean, Chris, you sort of mentioned it as well, that banks have been in a weird phase for the last, you know, you talk about that teenage uh, talking about sex phase, Julia, then actually, you know, banks have been in this like risk averse 
sort of in their shell for such a long period of time since 2008 and beyond, really. So actually that culture of risk averseness and protecting the empire has almost, you know, the thing they've held dearest is the thing that probably is strangling them the most right now, do you think? Well, I believe that, just circling back for a second, uh, the first part of your question regarding happiness, I, I honestly do not believe happiness is enough to have any kind of transformation. If you put it simply, if you are in a relationship with someone and you're happy and committed and engaged, it still does not mean that if a transformative period of your life comes, then you'll be able to handle it. You might have issues with finances or when you're moving or when you have a child And it is exactly the same thing with an organization. Just because you're happy, you can be even complacent. So it does not mean that you're going to embrace transformation or the changes that come. And I think this is a huge misunderstanding that if we measure engagement and satisfaction, then it means that everybody's happy. So, you know, we can do whatever we want to. It's not going to happen. People are going to be risk averse, complacent, you know, just not having the entrepreneurship or the boldness to go forward and find new ways. These two are completely different issues. Yeah. In my view. I agree. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, I just wanted to add something and then ask Nigel what his thoughts are on what I'm about to say, because when you're talking about digital transformation, you might as well say business transformation, cultural transformation, transformation. And I always remember a wonderful line that was from a CEO of a financial firm I was dealing with going through transformational change. And the CEO said, what you're really dealing with is a battlefield of change. And if you're not getting flack, then you're not in the right place because you have to be bombing the right place. You have to be in the battlefield in the right place. And you should be getting flack. You should have people who are unhappy because you're changing fundamentals of the organization. So if you don't get flack, then you're in the wrong place. Nigel, I mean, I know you must have seen this because I remember you and I have talked about a few of your experiences in your previous companies and how you feel released in Clearbank. Yeah, so it's very interesting having worked, like I said, 30-odd years in the large organizations and then the last couple in Clearbank. It's suddenly like it's such a different environment and, and happy to expand on that. But to your point, Chris, I think when you're – there's millions and millions of experts on technology. There's millions of program managers. There's millions of PMOs. But if you went up to a program and you presented to an executive board and said, and actually one of the primary work streams here is we've got to change the culture, right? They think it was a work stream. They think it was a project. They wouldn't really understand it. And going to your point about battlegrounds, I'm afraid I think it comes back to some of the original things that I said about the inherent DNA in brackets culture of these large organizations is one of fear. You know, whoever told you that quote, I think is absolutely spot on. And I feel I've definitely got more than my fair share of, you know, scars and wounds from being in those battles of really trying to bring an organization to a better place. But fundamentally, what you find is that, you know, it's effectively like the tip of the iceberg. And that organization is going to get you in the end because you just run out of supporters because it gets political. You run out of good faith. And, and I think, you know, something else that you said, when you talk about people trying to put in agents of change, 
I've seen it so many times. So you talked about, you know, let's set up a new business. We appreciate the cultural issues. So we're going to set up something completely separate. And that all goes like fantastic for the first couple of years. And then all of a sudden there's the risk that it's going to cannibalize the business of the mothership and the mothership starts getting twitchy. And so it basically gets suffocated. And I've also seen those same behaviors in people in large organizations of financial services where they recognized they needed a massive change. So they brought in gurus from outside of FS. They brought in gurus from Yahoo. They brought in gurus from Silicon Valley. And I tell you what happened. If there was an analogy of an organization being a body, it was organ rejection. That's what happened. The agent of change comes in and the culture of the existing environment eventually it just wears them down and it gets them. If we sat back and, and Chris, we've watched many, many organizations and been inside them. And you said, you know, when did, when did we see really, really successful, massive agents of change come in and manage to revolutionize a large organization? I'm struggling. Yeah, I mean, I'd quickly say a couple of things. Back in the 1990s, I was working on transformational change. And I used to use a video that came from Tom Peters about Union Pacific Railroads. And I still remember now the head of their program change saying the organization either wears you out or waits you out, which is a line that sticks with me because it's still the same 25 years later. And going to who has done change really well, the examples probably most recently is Satyam Nadella at Microsoft. And when you look at the change he's introduced, he's done it really quietly. Because of the person he is, there's no been no big Ballmer you know, explosions like there used to be under Steve Ballmer. It's just quiet change and in allowing people to be who they are. In fact, I'm posting a blog about this, but someone said on Facebook the other day, if you could go back to your 18-year-old self and with just three words, give yourself some advice, what would you say? And mine would be, just be you. It's interesting, isn't it? That's a a different type of culture, isn't it, that has been born. There's so much more to talk about in this sense. And actually, I I feel like even in the amount of time, we're still sort of scratching the surface on really what this is. But we're going to take a little bit of a quick break and we'll be back in a second. Okay, and on with the show. So, uh, I mean, that's an interesting point, Chris. There's different guises to this or different directions to this. You know, you talk about uh, a CEO creating a change in culture, not quite overnight, but very quickly in a very large organization. Uh, For me, I mean, I always think it's like your organization is what you hire, fire, train and reward on. If you create that environment, then it changes the dynamic of what happens on a day-to-day basis. But Chris, from, from your perspective, is this, you know, does culture get set top down or is culture a bottom up thing? Or is it both? It is both, but you need the burning platform to fire the organization into action. And from talking to the major banks around the world for my last book, but equally from my own experience over the last few years, it has to begin with something that ignites the organization to change and transform. So in ING, it was learning about ING Direct and realizing they can do banking without branches. With BBVA, there's a money laundering scandal which replaced the whole management team. With DBS, they did a digital bank in India and all the people in the rest of the regions realized, hey, they're doing digital banking. We better wake up. In fact, it's common to all the guys I spoke to. There was something that ignited change. 
Then you need to say, this is where we're going to go, guys, and give some form of direction, not direction, but a sort of point saying, this is the way forward. How can we get there? And then you don't tell people how to get there. You ask them to tell you how they think you can get there. And it's really a critical aspect of all of the change programs I've seen that are succeeding is amazing communications, amazing inclusion of all the people they in the organization. And going back to, you know, some people worry it's just about losing jobs. Yeah, jobs change. Some jobs might be lost. New jobs are created. But it's all about can you see the direction we want to go and can you go in that direction with us and help us to get there? And if you can't, then maybe you're the problem. And I think, you know, one of my favorite books is Who Moved My Cheese, which you probably know is the mice come out every day and one family of mice starve to death because the cheese isn't there because they don't bother going and look for it. You know, you've got to go and move to where the cheese is going, not just stay where, where it is. Hmm. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because that goes back, Julia, to a point we were making about happiness. Actually, in a, a period of change, then not everybody's going to be happy with that change. But it's about being very clear about where you want to get to. And to some instances, that is a top-down leadership role. In other instances, it's a bottom-up movement for, as Chris said, how do we really get there? So what, what do you think? Is is culture something that has to begin top-down and gain momentum lower down? Or where do you think it begins? I believe it's like love. It's all around us, basically, because it's a chicken and egg dilemma. You know, culture already starts to develop when, when even two people make a company and start to interact. The more they talk and do things together, the faster it develops. But, you know, then new people join and it shifts. It it is a living and breathing thing. One of the things that I find some truth in it is that in culture, the tone from the top is an important issue. But a couple of days ago, I heard you talk to, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, Ronit Goshla is his name. And he had a very valuable point about CEOs saying that uh, you know, they are only there for a short period of time. I mean, in certain countries, they are only there for a short period of time and their eyes are on their targets and already pitching for their next posts. So that means that they are not really immersing. They don't really care about the organization that they are currently in. They learn the address by the time, you know, they need to move to their next post. So if yes, I think it can be driven from the top if that person is, yes, it's charismatic and, you know, can stay around for years to see what's happening. But there are CEOs who do stick around long enough to shape a culture and, and, and take it to their heart. I did meet one. <laughs> She's brilliant. <laughs> But yes, I think it's really all around. Mm. It's interesting. And I know Ronit will appreciate the shout out as always in uh, on the podcast. But I mean, it's, it's interesting because your point at that point where, well, culture can happen by accident. You know, a bad culture can happen by accident. But it creates a conscious level of effort to sustain the type of culture that somebody really wants. I think there's a, a equally, I think, Julia, there's always a, almost a, a fallacy that culture is effortless if it's right, but it's not because it is, to your point around like a relationship, 
a relationship is always effort. It's always give and take, and it's always working at things to kind of make things work. So the sort of conscious effortness of and the amount of effort to create the culture that you want, I think is is really interesting. I mean, have you seen any sort of underlying philosophies or strategies? You know, there's a if you're a big bank listening to this right now and you're like, for the love of God, help us with this problem. Like, I identify that this is a problem. Please help me fix our culture. Where do you start? Is that the beginning that they know that there's a problem? Or is it, what's the what's the beginning step, do you think, Julia, to embracing and fixing it? I think definitely knowing that there is a culture, it's a good enough starting point. Unfortunately, more often than not, culture as a topic is only on the table of management boards when they are looking at the results of their people survey. So there's not much philosophy involved. However, there are two major misconceptions that I would share with you. One is that human resources is responsible for the people, therefore for the culture, and they should do something about it. It should not be the responsibility of a single organizational unit, just like innovation should not be confined to one. And this is one of the mistakes that usually companies make, that when they realize that their you know, culture exists and this is something that can really sink our ship, then this needs to be addressed, then this is what happens. They talk to HR and they tell them to do something about it. This is definitely an issue. I do believe that the first step is to see what we've got to work with and understand the culture. What are the points that will help our transformation and what are the points that are going to hinder it and see what we have enough to go with through the whole transformation process. I would definitely do it like that. Yeah, I agree. And as you say, it's almost a sort of a momentum thing, isn't it? Going back to our earlier discussion around how do you sow those seeds of change in that space? I think back to your point a second ago, actually, with a CEO, it would take a brave CEO to prioritize cultural transformation over business performance. But in often, we will have to find those people who will make that decision or get the backing from the board in order to be able to do those things to ultimately transition to the state that people really need to get to. Chris, just to sort of bring you into this, the sort of positioning of strategy around culture transformation and people living it and breathing it on a day-to-day basis. Because ultimately, you know, businesses don't have a culture. Like businesses are not things, they're just collections of people. So what we're talking about here really is the just the behaviors of people on a day-to-day basis, right? So why is this hard? Like ultimately, I don't think people, and I, I'm... I'm asking a question I know because it is hard, but it's like, actually, why is it so difficult to get people to buy into change that ultimately is, in most instances, good for them? First of all, I disagree with you that businesses are just businesses because every single bank that I walk into has a different culture. It has a different view of the world, a a different attitude. Yeah. And that's been created over time by the founders and the leaders of those institutions and typically is reinforced by those people. So, Yeah, but my point was, though, that a business has no cultural memory. It's the people that maintain it, isn't it? So HSBC or Barclays, they're doing the same thing. It's just they have different cultures because of the people who are there, right? Yeah, but it's like people attract like people. You know, So going through an interview process for a job, you tend to naturally hire people like you rather than someone that you dislike. So people that are abrasive, like you, have to find their own companies. (laughs) 
It's interesting because the project I'm working on at the moment is all about what I call purpose-driven banking. And it's about if you don't stand for something, you fall down. You know, In the world we live in today, pandemic and lockdown, but more than that, the things that were bubbling in the last decade around climate emergency, sustainability, ESG, CSR, so many acronyms. But more than that, inclusion, inequality, the 1%, you name it. I think institutions have to start creating values and purposes that employees and customers can buy into that are visible to employees and customers. And I posted an interview with Tom Blomfield, the founder and now retired president of Monzo, who we all know and love. You may have different views about him, but one clear thing about Tom is he's very purpose-driven. He believes in his mission, which is to make money work for everybody including those who currently don't have banking or don't have services, which is why Monzo created the Stop Gambling Program. And now Monzo is lobbying government to make sure every bank is a a gambling block for people who are addicted and cannot handle money effectively because of their addictions. And I think that's laudable to have something that they stand for. Yet when I go into traditional banks, because they've become the man, they've been around 300 years, They've lost their purpose. They don't have anything they stand for. They're just, what everyone says, a faceless bank who hire people they like and don't hire people they dislike. And again, I'm seeing, you know, Nigel, you know, you and I have probably had this conversation before, but I'm sure you've got some points you'd add to that. Yeah, I think it was interesting just before you said that, when David was asking the question, kind of like culture, where does it start? You know, my advice is just going to sound like I'm copying you now. Um, unfortunately, Chris, but fundamentally where I would start is I would go back to the organization and go back to its executive and I go, what do you stand for? What is your purpose and what is your vision? And, you know, it's such a simple question. Um, and I've been through this exercise a couple of times and a couple of different, it's actually incredibly painful to get that out because a lot of people have just, they've been there because they've been on the travelator of career progression and they haven't really faced that question. And I think that, you know, it's easy to knock large organizations to say large organizations have bad culture. But just going back to, you know, culture, you know, ClearBank, it's only five years old, five, five and a half, six years old. But we recognized last year that whilst we would say we've got a really good culture, we were getting the feedback because we constantly reach into the belly of the organization to ask people how they're feeling, what, 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 you know, what's going on, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that was coming out was, look, we, you know, we love working here. We're really excited about it. But, but what do we really stand for? What are we actually here for? So we've just been through this exercise of revisiting the purpose and the vision, right? Because we all know and love Nick Ogden in terms of like what he set it up for, the first clearing bank in 250 years. But when you're sitting there with a team of cloud engineers and saying, why are we here? Well, being the first clearing bank for 250 years doesn't do it for them. They want more. They want to understand what they're developing and what they're contributing to. What impact is it going to have and why? And so we went exactly to your point, Chris, was, was we defined, we actually did it what I would call middle up. And what I mean by that was it wasn't like right at the bottom of the organization, but it was effectively if you say that the top 25% of your of your hierarchy, of your triangle in an organization, there's a bad analogy already calling it a triangle, but if you you know what I'm trying to say, is is that we asked them to say, what do you what do you think the purpose of vision? And then we got the XCO and we got them involved. And it was a very two-way 
kind of symbiotic conversation. And we've actually come out with the refined purpose and vision. And then we're saying, right, now we've got to really embed this in everything that we do in terms of the way that we talk to our customers. And, and that was the first thing. What really interesting thing that came out was actually they're not customers, they're partners, because our purpose is to basically in, in, enable fairness of financial services across the UK infrastructure. And the way that we're going to do that is providing this platform that it has access to all these financial institutions and then and then the finan- our partners then go and innovate. And so it was just a simple, it's a simple example, but like a simple word, how then we have started to, you know, talk to our entire organization and people are like, okay, I, I get it. So just going back to your, you know, I think we've all seen many, many horror shows of, you know, a few hundred thousand or maybe a couple of million being spent on a, in a large organization of some, here's the five value sets. This is what we represent. But fundamentally, if you walk down the street and you went into the next bank, it wouldn't be materially different and it wouldn't be materially different again. And sometimes you get a feeling in those large organizations, they're more of a response to the regulator pressure now, which is talking about making sure you've got the right culture. So that's a lot of words, but fundamentally, I think that culture has a really close relationship with defining your purpose and your vision. Mm, I think being really clear about those things are critical, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's interesting, your point as organizations mature and develop, I mean, I, I've you know felt this firsthand with 11FS, you know, going from four people, you know, around a coffee table, it was pretty clear what we stood for. You get to 50 people, then actually you can kind of keep telling people, you get to 150 people, well, then actually you have to write this stuff down. And actually what you stand for, how you stand for it, and actually how you reinforce it, to your point, Nigel, becomes increasingly important. I mean, I've always sort of reminded of, I think anybody who wants a good laugh, go and Google Enron's conduct ethics book. And you know, they had wonderful culture. In fact, they had them in, you know, marble in their foyer. <laughs> Didn't go out that well, though, did it, in terms of the actually doing it? So, so this is why I think to what everybody's saying is, you know, culture your values, your principles, the things that you stand for is not your CEO standing up and saying these things. It is what everybody does on a day-to-day basis and it being tangibly reinforced by the organization. Do you know, I, I feel like we've talked for an hour, but I feel like we're still scratching the surface so much on this subject because culture isn't a thing. It's everything. Like it is fundamentally everything in the way in which a business does things. But the times where it's tested, I think are the times where you can really define whether it's meaningful in an organization. You know, I'm sure, you know, Julia, Chris, Nigel, we've all worked in organizations where there was that one asshole who was really good at what they were doing, but they were an asshole. And actually it's whether that behavior is tolerated within an organizational culture or not, and whether that is reinforcing or showing people within the organization that the values, the behaviors, the culture is is just vaporware. I mean, Julia, like in banks, that has to be a difficult trade-off because again, it's it's the trade-off between our priorities being revenue or achieving a thing to the sustainability of the achieving the thing adhering to the culture. Absolutely. And I totally can relate to the asshole part because I've seen quite a few of them in my time. And, uh, and I, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a fintech list we definitely <laughs> should create at some point, but uh, maybe a, show, a later show. Hey? Yeah. 
I definitely think so. I, I think it is very important to, when we're talking about a bank, I would really underline what you said before that, you know, it is a living, breathing thing. And it is very important to treat it as such. And if you stand for something and these people come along, if you tolerate them, then it's sending a bad message. And the thing is that it's not only sending a bad message within the company, but also to your customers. And that is something that is eventually going to undermine your business. Agree. Yeah. All right, Chris, uh, give you the last point. What do you think? If there was one thing banks need to do to really understand culture, what is it? It's really to embrace the values, purpose, and vision properly. In that, um, I've walked into so many companies that have their values in the foyer, and things like integrity, service, excellence, respect, whatever. And it might as well say superior happiness, insight, totality, shit. Because <laughs> it is, it's not breathed and it's not in the DNA of the leadership or the people in the institution. And so, Really, it's about getting it into the DNA and into the blood of the company. That not only are we transforming, which means we change, but this is what we're changing into. Here's the direction, and here's all the purpose and the values and the vision that goes around that direction. And we want you to help us to shape it. So we haven't defined it in a rigid way. It's a living, breathing thing. Agree. Culture is very much what you do, not what you say you do. And uh, I think, uh, as we say, that it's so many different shades of things within an organization. And I think, as all of us have said, really, it's like a plant. You've got to kind of tend to it daily for it to really be successful. All right, guys, I feel like this should turn into like an ongoing series because there's just so much to unpack in, in all the things that we've different elements that we've talked about. But we do have to wrap up today, I'm afraid. Thank you so much for everybody for joining us. Where can people learn a little bit more about you and what you do? Mr. Skinner, where can people find out more about yourself? Thefinancer.com or on Twitter, Chris underscore Skinner. Very good. Julia, where can people learn a little bit more about you and what you do? You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Julia Fredi, F-U-R-E-D-I, or check out our website, sparku.hu. Very good. Nigel, where can people learn a little bit more about you? Yeah, ditto to Julia. LinkedIn would be uh, probably the best way, or nigel.walder at clear.bank. Very good. As always, you can find me on at David Breer over on Twitter or over on LinkedIn as well. Thank you very much for listening today. Uh, if you do like what you've heard, then feel free to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It makes it much better and easier for other people to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on pretty much every social media platform at this stage. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider. Or if you really want to, then drop us an email on podcasts at 11FS. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Goodbye.